Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 172. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And uh, my voice is finally recovering after the weekend in Manchester at Play Expo. What a weekend we had. It was non-stop, but I did actually come down with proper full-on man flu before we went. This was funny. When you came into the office, the organiser <laughs> was like, is that really your voice? I thought you were joking. <laughs> Everyone I saw on Saturday was like, oh, you boys out having it large in Manchester last night. I'm like, well, if your class getting in my uh, Ghostbusters onesie and typing up the panels for today and going to bed at nine o'clock at night as large, then no, we didn't at all. So <laughs> you don't mind that if you have a big night out and you lose your voice in that, you've earned it. Yeah, but, um, yeah. yeah. Of all the timings. But what a weekend it was. We made it through. And this weekend is kind of going to be probably the biggest show we've ever done. This is a blockbuster episode of the Retro Hour podcast. Not one guest, not two, but actually we've got three guests that we're going to bring you in the next hour. Oh, my God. Two of them recorded live at Play Expo. Now, Matthew Smith. Yeah, yeah, it was great to see Matthew there, actually. There was a lot of fans that came up to him, and they all got, like, personal items and a lot of photos taken with him. He he was a bit spacey, as usual, old Matthew is, but... um, it was quite a nice little talk, and they showed a film as well, didn't they, which was yep. uh, by a French filmmaker who uh, it was kind of a tribute to Jet Set Willy as well. So we're going to be getting a bit of talk from Matthew as well, what we could capture, because, you know, being on stage and everything, you get a bit of feedback and stuff, so we've edited what we can. Yeah, so I mean, this is really going to be the highlights of the panels, because, I mean, we'll show movies and that kind of stuff too. We've chopped all that out, but really going to get, you know, the, the meat of the, the questions, a Q&A bit of the Matthew Smith talk, which is around 20 minutes long. And uh, then we did a panel with um, Jake Habgood, who was behind Hogs of War, and we talked a bit about his time at Gremlin and you know some of the great titles he worked on there too. So we did that on the Saturday, and again, we chopped out kind of the bits where we show movies and clips and stuff, so that's going to be about 25 minutes. So we thought this week we'd run them back to back, let you hear a bit of a flavour of what went on on stage at Play Expo in Manchester. And also going to be joined by um, Christian Simpson, who we did have on a few weeks ago, Perifractic's Retro Recipes, because, I don't know if you've seen this, there's been a bit of a groundbreaking discovery in the world of retro writing. I found that really, really interesting. So I got a sneaky listen to it before, and just listening to that five-minute clip gave me a lot of confidence in what he's got to say. Yeah. Because I'm terrified of taking my Super Nintendo apart you know, and sticking some, what is it, some Tresemme on it or something, <laughs> and bleaching it, you know, in a bag and just it making that marbly effect streakiness. But a really, really interesting listen and something I might try in the yeah. summer. Yeah, some really, something even you could do, Joe. Yes, even e- you. Even me. <laughs> so we'll talk more about that in just a bit and all the best bits from Play Expo in Manchester. And uh, we are going to have some um, interesting stories, including a new Xbox emulator that could be running very soon on your Nintendo Switch. Now, Play Expo, obviously, great weekend. Thank you to everyone that came along. And how many people came over and shook their hands and said... Oh, it was amazing. Seriously, we couldn't walk across it without people saying thank you. And there were so many, so many nice words from people. We loved it. I felt like I took Dan and Ravi into the marketplace after the talks, and I felt like Yuri Geller... Walking through Harrods with, Mike, uh, Harrods with Michael Jackson. Honestly. <laughs> the best comparison. Like, <laughs> I'm walking them through. And it was like a press tour. Like, people just coming over to you guys. It was amazing. Just saying thank you and stuff like that. And I was just like, bloody hell, I'm trying to take you to the Lynx games here, Dan. <laughs> and there is a few people pointing on that handsome Joe. Oh, but, God. <laughs> I'll tell you one thing that I saw there, though. The Spectrum Next. Yeah. Um, my God. 
We'll talk about it in a minute. Okay. That was amazing. We'll chat more about that in just a sec. But if you did come over and say hello at Play Expo, it was great to meet everyone that came down. And we have got more events coming up. I'm going to be at Pixel Heaven next weekend in Poland. And then we've got Retro Spill Messen in Norway next month as well. So, uh, yeah, busy summer for us as usual, isn't it? So. Yeah, £14 a pint. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll forget about that bit. So if you want to get links to uh, waiting get tickets for all those events, we're all in the events section of our website at theretrohour.com. And actually, speaking of our website, that is where you can support the Retro Hour podcast. Of course, we are the weekly show. We come out every single Friday. We bring you everything that's happening in the world of retro gaming, special guests, all these events that we do as well. It would not be possible without your support. So we want to give a big thank you to uh, people who have made a donation into the running of the show and really helped us out. Like this week, Craig Grist, Ed Barrett, Paul Edwards, and Carl Kouras, who all made donations into the running of the show. And you can do the same. We accept PayPal through our website, theretrohour.com. And any amount you donate, you will earn your place in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame and get a mention in a future episode. Now, before we get into the news, speaking of big supporters of the Retro Hour podcast, The Economist. Now, these have been big friends of the show for months and months now. We really appreciate their support. And we've actually got a great little offer for our UK listeners. We would like to give you your own free print copy of The Economist. Now, we have said it before that The Economist is about, you know, much more than just economics and finance. It covers so much in their politics, business, what's happening in the world today, science, technology, even gaming as well. Now, Joe, I know you were checking out this um, article about the rise of modding recently in The Economist. Yeah, so I hadn't really got on board with this just yet, but Dan sent me some stuff over and I actually got really involved with it and actually found some really interesting stuff there in there about modding, not realising that games like Fortnite and PUBG and stuff like that came from modding communities and actually modding has actually been present in gaming since the 90s, well, the early yeah. 90s, with you know games like Quake actually being built with modding intended. And I never knew that, so that just blew me away, reading stuff like that in The Economist. Yeah, this whole kind of battle royale thing that's come yeah. out at the moment is all from the modding community, and that's like a whole new genre that's really yeah. taken over. Well, the same at the moment in school playgrounds, it's bigger than like, you know, music and it's like, you know, the kids are really into that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Now. Huge, you know, so. People used to be into, you know, remixing and stuff like that, but it's explaining there's now a bigger community in modding than there is in mixing music and stuff like that, which is amazing. And that is the kind of stuff that you can read about in The Economist now. They've been going over 170 years, so you know they're going to bring you news and intelligence that you can trust. And there's a broad range of topics in there as well. We would love you to have a look at The Economist for yourself. So all you have to do, if you'd like to get a free print copy of The Economist through your door, get your phone right now, text the word RETRO and send it to 78070. So text RETRO to 78070. We'll make sure you get a copy of The Economist delivered to you with our good friends from The Economist, the smart guide to the forces changing your world. So what do you think of the next? Oh, I think it's absolutely beautiful. And a lot of focus has been on the games. Now, what we got shown was the OS, and the OS is fantastic. You can choose all the different firmwares of Spectrum, so you can even get the Soviet Spectrums on there, <laughs> and, which is insane, and load up that. But it also has all the little adapters that you'd have to buy before and have them all hanging off, all built in. Yeah. So it really saves a lot of time. It reads straight off USBs and micro SDs. Oh. Beautiful well, the, the guy machine. that was showing us, he had like, um, you know, USB keyboard plugged in. He's like, I don't like that rubber thing. But we actually saw the new case as well, didn't we? Oh, you know, yeah. And the new keyboards, which were really yeah. nice. But um, some of the options that they do, you know, you can play Atari sound through there. That They've got the sound chips working really well. The whole operating system is just 
beyond anything I've seen on the Spectrum. So this is a, a really fantastic project. And I think, you know, those demo coders and those kind of guys, they're just going to enjoy this to push it, I think. Yeah, and no, I saw you, like, you know, um, he said to me, keep the guy talking, I'm going to put it in my bag. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to get two now. Really with them. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully there'll be in more people's hands very soon as well, because I know they've been, like, so hard to get hold of, but it's understandable they're making a new platform from scratch. Yeah, and I think they're going to have, like, around 10K users initially, yeah. which is a great start. Yeah, so if you want to check out the pictures we took of the next, I mean, loads of people were snapping pics on their stand, uh, check out our Twitter, at RetroHourUK. Now, let's talk about this. Original Xbox emulator running on the Nintendo Switch. Now, the Switch is an interesting platform. I mean, you know, you've hacked your Wii U. Mm-hmm. I know you've talked about that on the show before, and that's um, a system that, you know, Nintendo have kind of left alone now. Um, and you've got a Wii U as well, haven't you? Do, yeah. do you play your Wii U much? Uh, I'm not going to lie. It's been packed away in yeah. recent months. I've not played it that much. This, well, I've not played it this year. So yeah. it kind of comes out when you have a bit of a party. I'm the same with mine, but I think if you're going to bring it back to life, that's a way to do it, isn't yeah. it? But hacking the Switch, I'm a bit more nervous about because some people are, you know, are reporting that their consoles have been bricked and blocked by Nintendo and that yeah. kind of thing. But, I mean, this looks really interesting. Um, there's a video that's been posted on YouTube by an Xbox fan called Voxel9, and he claims to be showing an emulator called XQMU Xbox Emulator running on the Nintendo Switch, and... He actually managed to load up a few games, including Halo. Oh, nice. Now, if it's online. <laughs> well, I said, apparently it's not out there at the moment, yeah. but if you look at it, he's playing Halo Combat Evolved, and the frame rate is probably around nine frames a second. Yeah, I thought I was watching, uh, is it Jet Set Radio? I yeah. think it is. He's playing that. And I thought it was, you know, I thought it was a GIF. I don't think it is. I think it's just the frame rate. <laughs> well, apparently this video is sped up by four times. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it oh, runs wow. really slow. Okay. I guess it's all software rendering. He probably hasn't got the hardware to access it yet. And when he does, it might be, oof, really fast. Because the Switch has got some powerful hardware behind it. Well, you think, you know, powerful enough to run the original Xbox, I'd imagine. Yeah. Mm. But what they're saying is the emulator that they're using on here is an open source Xbox emulator that actually is designed to run only smoothly on really top-end, high-end gaming PCs. So it is kind of doing a lot of stuff in software to kind of, apparently bit by bit, it emulates the original Xbox GPU in software. Oh, okay. So that is, I imagine, quite a job. And you can also overclock the Switch. People have been messing about and overclocking it and stuff, and mm. it, it doesn't get too hot or anything. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there is potential. It explodes in your hand. <laughs> potential for mods. So um, recently they kind of blocked the mods, but um, Team Executor, who seem to be the ones that are, are releasing it, released SX. SX OS and Sexy OS. Yeah. And that's compatible with all the stuff. So you can boot the original firmware, boot some custom firmware on there, run all the old stuff, but also it's future proof. So they're saying that anything that is built with this OS in mind will not be removed later by Nintendo. It's not going to get bricked. Yeah. That would be my biggest fear. Apparently reading about this emulator as well as it runs on Linux, and they reckon that the Linux distro actually boots from the SD card, so the actual OS on the Switch doesn't know about it. Ah. I mean, they reckon the only way Nintendo might be able to tell is if the clock changes without the Switch OS doing it, then it might be like, hang on, what's going on here? Yeah. So there is tiny little things like that that they reckon Nintendo are looking at. So little disclaimer, we're not saying do it, but, you know, the information is out there if you want to discover how to do it. But since it got, you know, 
hacked last year, that exploit was found. People are doing some interesting stuff with the Switch at the moment. Yeah, but I'm also finding out that a lot of the information is also disappearing offline. So yeah. videos of people doing it, for example, Modern Vintage Gamer got taken down by Nintendo. Guides are being taken down. So if you do find it, save it on your hard drive and keep it. Yeah. <laughs> Reminds me of like... Future you know, reference. <laughs> Reminds me of back in the day when you'd like go to school and you didn't have the internet at home and you'd save the web pages on a disc to yeah. take home and read them. Like, I was going to say, I was going to go even more old school than that when you go to Asda with your parents and you go down the gaming magazine bit, get on your hands and knees and like write down like <laughs> things that you can do from cheats and stuff. <laughs> you didn't do, you didn't rewrite the articles, did you? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you come back in five hours, mum. I'm just going to copy this out. Just <laughs> always do it. <laughs> I was I thought you were going to say at least photocopy them. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, if you want to check out more about that. It's an interesting video. Some people are saying, though, because he's showing it, but he's using, like, um, a pro controller away from the system. So you don't see his hands on it. Some people are like, well, there's a YouTube app on the Switch now. Yeah, yeah. How do we know he's not just running a video? Yeah. Which it could be, you know, because he's disabled comments and everything on the video. So there is a chance it's out, but... It's cool to see people doing stuff like that, yeah. so if you want to check it out, I'll put a link in this week's show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, one thing being retro gaming hardware enthusiasts that has plagued us for many years now is um, a lovely old systems not looking quite so good after we've had them for quite a while. I believe it's often termed smoker's yellow that they go. We've all got systems that have gone that horrible yellow colour, haven't we? Yeah, I, I tried to retro bright one with some B blonde but it's ended up going back to yellow so <laughs> I'm not risking it <laughs> well I mean I've tried it on um, first thing I tried it on was actually an Amiga 3000 keyboard Ooh, which are quite rare, rare which yeah. are quite rare and it's got a bit marbly I mean you know, it, it could have been worse. I tried it with the Dreamcast as well, and the same thing happened. It's all scaly and like yeah. I think it's a foil I put over it. But the thing at the moment is, there's lots of different methods of doing it, and they range from really complicated, um, you know, stuff like um, peroxide formulas and heating systems and oxidizing agents, and <laughs> you're turning your your garage into some, like a scene out of Breaking Bad yeah. to try and turn your SNES back to its original color. <laughs> but then you know, Ravi, I think you were the first person that told me about that. It's using like hair peroxide kind of stuff yeah. on it. And it was Ravi who told me as well. Yeah, I remember you doing a video about that probably like, what, 10 years ago now. Um, but now it turns out there could be, and I can't believe no one's even tried this before, an even simpler way of doing it that anyone could do. So I thought I'd invite back on this week um, a guy that we had on the show recently, actually one of our favourite guests of recent months, Christian Simpson, a.k.a. Perifractic's Retro Recipes. Now, you've made quite an interesting discovery, Christian. Hey, guys. So thanks, thanks for having me back on. Um, yeah, so... I'd seen a forum post and it had claimed that you could retrobrite just using the sun. This was on a German forum. And this didn't seem right because obviously people always use peroxide and, you know, ultraviolet light, all kinds of things. But actually it really appealed to me because I, I love the idea of not having to dismantle a machine if you don't otherwise need to. I think even the best um, repairers out there have, have probably lost a screw or had a a spring fly off into the dog food or, you know, whatever happens. So there is a definite benefit of not dismantling. So I gave it a try. I, I took a few bits of gear outside and I, I filmed this. Um, it's in a video now on, on the Retro Recipes channel. And I was blown away. After day one, just from the sun, there was definite noticeable de-yellowing. Um, and I had this this Macintosh that had had one of those Polaroid filters around the screen, so it had like a ski goggle suntan, where the the rest of the case was you know yellowed and um, smoker's yellow as you would call it. Ooh. 
And even that became hard to see, that contrast. And the rest of the case started to turn back to the color that was the original color under the where the Polaroid filter had been. So, yeah, that's that's the basics of the idea. And I, I was I was stunned. So I thought I've got to share this with the community and get people trying it. Because I remember you, you mentioned in there as well that, you know, someone was talking about the fact that bones in the human body are not actually white, but when they're left out in the sun in the desert, for example, they do turn white. That was kind of the science behind the theory, I guess. Yeah, that was that was what made sense to me. Um, you know, bones, I don't know if you've looked at your bones recently. Um, not for a while. <laughs> they, I guess the kind of greyish yellow, um, ironically yellow, not, not actually the same process going on here at all. But the other example I give, I show like a, a sun lounger or a chair that's been left outside and is bleached in the suns. And then obviously your hair can go blonde in the sun. So those were the things that made me think, huh, there may be some science behind this. So I enlisted the help of a couple of experts and we got Dr. Richard Blair, PhD. He's from the Florida Space Faculty and also um, James Pickett, PhD. And he'd worked for GE as a polymer yellowing expert for 30 years. So this is the guy who literally wrote the book. In <laughs> fact, I, I put a link to the paper he wrote on plastic yellowing in the description of the video. And I presented them this. And initially, one of them said, this is contrary to everything we know about polymer behavior. So I thought, okay, this is never going to work. But he did an experiment the same day that I did my first test. And he put a cloth over half of a yellow uh, Winbest keyboard. <laughs> And after the day was up, he took the cloth off. And this is actually the thumbnail for the video because it was so good. Half of the keyboard has retrobrighted and it's amazing. Um, so he was blown away and it's a little complex, but it, and what I did was I put it into a nice kind of diagram in the video and, and explained what we think is going on. But the, the long and the short of it is that when your stuff's inside, it's in, it's getting diffused sunlight when it yellows. And it's also getting heat, you know, just from the house, warmth. Um, and fluorescent lighting can also play a factor. Um, and I've actually had people comment saying, yes, the computer I had that yellowed the worst was in a room with a fluorescent light. Right. Um, or yes, I had a computer that was up in the attic. It got no sunlight, but a lot of warmth and it went brown. So this actually was great because it, it ratified what we were presenting as the hypothesis. But when you put it outside in direct sunlight, it's getting uh, a concentrated dose. It's not diffused UVA and UVB, it's pure UVA and B. Even through clouds, actually, this works. And it, what it, what is happening is the plastic, if you sort of think of it as a seesaw effect, once it's yellowed, it's it's changed its state and it's kind of flipped the other way. And it's become sensitive to de-yellowing. So once it's flipped into that yellowed state and you stick it outside and it gets that much more concentrated dose it's much more receptive to bleaching so yeah that's the basic hypothesis and it, it's we've it, we're getting results now on twitter from several people who are posting before and after photos from one day of testing and i'm, I'm kind of retweeting them um and they're equally blown away by this so it's yeah it's it's really fun and really easy so you say it can also be used through clouds, so it could be used in a place like England where we don't get that much stuff. <laughs> I was going to say, Christine's got the Californian sunshine. Yeah, it's not go. quite as nice as nothing. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, ideally, the, if a really yellow machine, I'm thinking it's going to, and I'm still doing mine, but I think it's going to take a couple of weeks. And I know we only get about four days of summer in England, but even through cloud, um, actually the test I did on day one, I show in the video, it was a cloudy day in Los Angeles. We actually had rain 
for one of my testing days. But yeah, it depends on the type of cloud. And this is why sometimes you burn when it's cloudy and you, you think you're safe from UV. Sometimes you don't burn, but it's actually different types of clouds filter UV in different ways. But generally speaking, you still get a decent dose coming through the clouds, yeah. I can already see Ravi now on the next bank holiday weekend with his, uh, his Amiga 500 on the beach in Skegness, second of the race. <laughs> that is a breakthrough, though, Christian. And I mean, you know, that just sounds so simple. So uh, I'll put a link to your video in our show notes as well. People want to check it out. But that sounds cool. like it could save a lot of hassle. I hope so, yeah. I hope we can, we can share it wide and uh, get people restoring these beautiful machines with a little more ease and without losing bits in the process. Yeah, and if anyone has any uh, positive results with it as well, drop us a tweet at Retro Hour UK and uh, we'll forward them on to you as well, Christian. Or negative results. Either yeah. way, I'm open. <laughs> cool. Thanks a lot for having me on, guys. And uh, yeah, good luck with your, what I'm calling, light brighting. Now, on Friday, when we arrived at Play Expo, um, obviously last week's episode had just come out where we had that big chat about, you know, the fact that we didn't like Sonic the Hedgehog um, in the new movie. And then uh, we suddenly got a load of tweets who were going, Guys, you know they've actually changed their mind now and they're going to be redoing Sonic in the film. We're like, oh, we recorded the show two or three days ago. So <laughs> the timing on that wasn't great, but it turns out they've listened to the fans. Yeah, so Dan messaged me the day, the morning after uh, recording to say, have you seen they've changed it? And I was like, when I first saw the tweet, you know, with the picture of all the like modded Sonic characters around it, I thought to myself it was fake. And I was just like, wait, what date is this? Like, what's going on? Is this April Fool's? What's actually happening? Is this is this actually the guy who's directing the film who's tweeted this? And I had to double check it all. And yeah, amazingly, they've actually listened to the, uh, the, the feedback, the criticism. They seem to be doing this a lot, Sega, actually, listening to people. Like, when the <laughs> At Games console was yeah. released with Awful Sound, they said, right, we're going to stop and we're going to actually drop at games and release a, a decent mega drive so yeah. you know it, it seems like they're actually caring it's good to see that but yeah my question was how how much is that going to cost you know because yeah. that's a lot of effort yeah. to go in yeah, there a bit change, of cgi bit just, of cgi <laughs> yeah, a couple eyes. of grand sorted yeah. <laughs> yeah you'd imagine for a movie where the main character is cgi yeah. that's a lot of frames of animation to redo again isn't it so mm. the movie was meant to be out in november that's got to be Tens or hundreds of thousands of frames. They're late for Christmas, won't they? I think it's going to be delayed till next year, I I think. Do you reckon? I reckon reckon Christmas. I I think they'd they'd want it out by then, and hopefully it will Mm. be. But, yeah, it's Jeff Fowler, who's the uh, the director of the film. He put a tweet out. He goes, thank you for the support and the criticism. The message is loud and clear. You aren't happy with the design and you want changes. It is going to happen. Everyone at Paramount and Sega are fully committed to making this character the best he can be. And, you know, like you said last week, Sonic deserves better. Yeah, absolutely. I feel sorry for him. I felt sorry for him when he came out. Now I feel sorry for the fact that they've scrapped that design. Uh, But he does. He deserves better. It's our boy. Now, one thing about the trailer that a lot of people commenting on was uh, the fact that they had Gangster's Paradise in there, you know, by Coolio? Yeah. Oh, yeah, from the film Dangerous Minds with uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. That was one back in the day. <laughs> well, everyone's, everyone's a bit like, why is that song even in there? So a few people have had a little play around, and, um, you know, if, if they're changing the Sonic character, maybe they could change the version of Gangster's Paradise in there. What about this? Like in this? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's all right. I'm trying to think what chip he's used. <laughs> it sounds like the Yamaha. It's a Mega Drive. Yeah, yeah, Yamaha <laughs> chip. Yeah. It sounds like it would just be in the background of Sonic 2. Yeah. Well, like. they could have done the Stevie Wonder pastime paradise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, this guy here is called uh, Pake in the Heat. 
He's done Gangster's Paradise, Sega Genesis style. So they're saying if they're going to go the effort of reading the CGI, reading the soundtrack, I'm sure you license it for them. That's actually pretty yeah. cool. It does yeah. sound nice. <laughs> so there you go. A little suggestion, Sega, you know, if you're listening. So if you want to check out that video, we can hear the song in full. Everything else we talked about this week, you'll find it all in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Right then, let's get into our first chat live from the Retro Hour stage at Play Expo in Manchester over the weekend, where on Saturday morning, uh, I was there with a very croaky voice. Uh, Ravi on stage with me as well, and we're joined by Jake Habgood, the man behind Hogs of War, to talk about developing that game and a bit of history of Gremlin and infograms as well. So let's get into that panel. And it's our pleasure to welcome the man behind the legendary Hogs of War. Welcome to the stage, Dr. Jacob Habgood. Now, Jacob, you worked at Gremlin Interactive. Um, what was your favorite title when you were there? You know, I really enjoyed the old titles. The Zool um, oh, yeah, was classic. a particular favorite of mine. Um, and, you know, it was games like Zool, Monty Mole, I suppose, that had made me aware of Gremlin and made me want to come and work for them when I graduated in, what, 1996? And you uh, recently contributed to uh, Chris Wilkins' book as well around Gremlin from Retrofusion. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, um, I've contributed to a number of books and I've written books myself that sort of uh, remake Zool. Uh, we did a book where we remade Zool in Game Maker, which is good fun. Um, but, uh, and yes, and Mark Hardesty's book, the, uh, uh, Gremlin in the Works, that's a fantastic sort of history of, uh, of, of Gremlin's uh, game development. So remember, Zool was all kind of talked about like it was the Amiga's alternative to Sonic the Hedgehog, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, absolutely. And I don't think many people realise that in its day, it was selling as many copies yeah. as a Sonic the Hedgehog. And, you know, if the Amiga had taken a different course, perhaps we'd sort of be around celebrating Zool uh, and not so much Sonic, or, or at least complaining about a remake of uh, some movie with him in. <laughs> Well, Gremlin turned into Infograms, and that was based in Sheffield, and you started to do work on PlayStation games. Yeah, so I joined uh, Gremlin Interactive in 1996, so they were still called Gremlin at that stage. Uh, Loaded had just been released as a release title on the PlayStation 1, so as an undergraduate, I had a PlayStation 1, and I was you know, playing Loaded and thinking this was a really cool game, and I, I'd very much like to go and work for Gremlin. Um, and I applied to, to work there and, and you know, was, was over the moon to get my first job there working um, uh, in Sheffield in Carver Street. Um, but uh, uh, you, the, my first title that I worked on was actually a game called Reloaded, um, uh, which was the sequel to Loaded, but not nearly as good. <laughs> and you worked on Judge Dredd as well. Yeah, Judge Dredd. Uh, I mean, I, I worked on a whole load of different games at Gremlin, but... Largely, I had the pleasure of writing the memory card systems, which is a pretty dull thing to do. Um, so I, I wrote all of the memory card systems for a whole range of different games on the PlayStation 1. But it was Reloaded that was my sort of first. I was a front-end programmer on, on Reloaded. And then Hogs of War was my first sort of lead project. Well, before Hogs of War, were you guys playing a lot of Worms or into games like Worms Armageddon, which was quite big at the time? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, Scorched Earth as well. So, you, you know, I think often people, and I'm, I'm sure it's going to come up, uh, people say that uh, Hogs of War is Worms in 3D. And, you know, that, that's kind of what it is. But uh, people forget sometimes that Worms itself has, you know, forerunners and that, that kind of game mechanic was established many years earlier than, than Worms itself. Well, why did they choose World War I as a setting? Um, I, I guess... You know, we thought that uh, there was a lot of scope there for 
um, sort of black humor. And, um, you know, we were very much into Blackadder um, and felt that there was a, a sort of trench humor that could work really well and, and be quite cynical about the war. Um, and we liked that as a sort of setting for the game. Because Gremlin had that kind of feel of European gaming before with stuff like Zool. And this title felt very British with um, the kind of Blackadder connection and uh, having Monty Python's theme tune as actually in the game. How did you get that licensed or was it free to use? Uh, so the, the Monty Python theme tune is actually uh, a, you know, a historical piece of music. So it's completely out of copyright. So I actually put it in the game without any permission to begin with because I thought it fitted. Um, and then when they, they saw it in marketing, they said, yeah, this is really good. And they were even more pleased when they realized they didn't have to pay any copyright. Well, how did the idea of pigs come around? Pigs <laughs> of war, like Black Sabbath? Or? No, I, I think Aid Carlos, the designer, uh, probably you know, was more into that kind of thing. Um, uh, but, uh, I mean, the, the story goes, and I, I have to sort of say that Ian Stewart does dispute this. So Ian Stewart, the guy who set up Gremlin, um, the story goes that uh, Ian Stewart went to see Babe um, and in a, a marketing meeting after having seen Babe, um, he said, well, you know, we really need to be making games about pigs. People like pigs. Um, so, you know, they were looking at what games were, were doing well in the charts in those days. And it was actually Command and Conquer, um, not Worms, that inspired uh, Hogs of War. So the original concept, that, that we had a two-page document written by A. Carlos, who was the designer on, on Zool as well. Um, it, it sort of sets out this idea for a game which is basically command and conquer with pigs. Well, I thought the level design was fantastic and they, the way that it was kind of like a voxel landscape but it seemed like populous on a, on a much larger chunk. Um, how did you think of the designs and kind of uh, come up with that stuff? Um, so, I mean, the, the game engine itself um, was based around that landscape. I mean, you know, everything we were trying to do with it was give a very long view distance so that players could kind of have these sniper shots going all the way across the level. Um, but the level designs uh, themselves, I mean, were done by a number of artists over the course of the project. But it was, it was really when Phil Wilson um, took over and, and sort of put those levels into, into shape. Um, and Phil Wilson actually went on to be the producer on the original Crackdown. Um, so, you know, he, he sort of started creating levels for Hogs of War. And uh, draw distance on the PlayStation then as well wasn't amazingly good. So it's good to have that uh, yes, kind of range. Yes, it, it was a complete nightmare. Um, and, and getting the performance out of the PlayStation 1. I know, you know, even in its day, it, it didn't look that great. Um, but the number of polygons we were throwing about, you know, I have had some compliments from other programmers who've stuck it through a PlayStation 1 profiler and gone, wow, you, 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 know, you were throwing some polygons at the system there. Um, but yeah, it, you know, it, as a result, um, it meant we had to restrict the number of polygons in the pigs um, and, you know, the number of players on the level just to make that work. Were there any, like, textures of levels that were not used in the final release then? Did it go through a lot of iterations? Oh, absolutely dozens. Um, I, I mean, I think if I would attribute the, the game's final success to anything, it would be that, that sort of constant iteration that went on. Um, so to give you a bit of background, I mean, we, we developed the game to a certain stage, um, but uh, at that point, the game wasn't looking good. Um, the pigs looked quite scary. Uh, nobody liked them. The gameplay wasn't there at all. Um, uh, and it was all a bit hideous. I mean, we've got a bit of a clip of that. If I mean, this is the front end as it was then. That was written 
So the front-end programmer on Hogs of War went on to be the programmer of Worms 3D. So they poached him uh, after that project, and, and he went on and worked on uh, Worms as well. But um, once we get into the game, you'll kind of see it, it, was, it was really quite clunky. So the pigs are quite sort of human-like and tall, um, and they were using motion capture data to try and kind of shoehorn in. See lots of tearing problems in the user interface here. Um, and uh, it was pretty slow and, and, and hideous. So, I mean, at this point, the, the game really could not have existed. It, it, it was looked at by management, um, and they said, you know, this isn't working, guys. Um, you know, perhaps we should think about canning the project and doing, doing something else. Um, but the team really believed in the idea, and we said, well, no, you know, give us a little bit longer. Uh, we'll strip it down, and we, we remade the game uh, as what we called Cubes of War. Um, so we took all the graphics out and you know, replaced pigs with boxes and had boxes shooting other boxes across the level. Um, and that, that gameplay prototype actually demonstrated that the game was fun to play. Um, and, it, and we had a separate prototype where we sort of made the pigs look cuter as well. Um, so it was only when we got those two things together um, that management said, yeah, okay, this has got some legs. But it was about that time that, that we were being taken over by Infograms too. So this whole process, the legal process of being taken over by another company takes ages. So it was actually a great benefit to, to the project because we kept working, we kept making it better and better. Um, and then eventually when our, our new French masters came and looked at it, um, they said, hey, this is, this is really good fun. We, we like this game. So that timing really helped then? It, it really did, yeah. I mean, it wasn't great for Gremlin uh, to be, you know, uh, the flotation on the stock market going wrong and being uh, uh, subject to a hostile takeover. But for Hogs of War, that actually gave us the extra development time to, to make it something that actually ultimately succeeded. And I guess when you got it to that level, was it easier to implement stuff like the random generation for levels, which added a lot of life to the game? Uh, yeah. No, I mean, we, we got uh, once people believed in it again. And it was the multiplayer mode, you know, not the single player mode that, that really got people. We had some executives uh, sort of come from Infograms and play the game, and, and we could just hear from outside the room they were laughing themselves stupid. Um, and interestingly, the guy, the guy that, that came in and looked at it from Infograms is a guy called Sean Millard, who is now the creative director at Sumo Digital in, uh, in Sheffield. Um, but he really loved the game, and we got backing then uh, to carry on and invest more time. But also, you know, they were willing to invest money in marketing uh, and, you know, that's how we led on to uh, getting Rick Mail involved. Well, also, uh, kind of having that multiplayer aspect, we've talked to lots of developers, and as soon as that comes into the office, development slows down because everybody sat there playing the game. Was there a lot of that going on? There was, but it, it happened in the evening. Um, so we would create builds during the day, and we would literally go around to Phil Wilson's house and play it until midnight, and then we'd get up the next day, <laughs> work on the game till the end of the day, and then go around to his house again and play it till the end. Um, so there was just this whole period of, of just obsessively playing and altering the game and making it better and better. And Phil was pretty ruthless. You know, he, if a game, if a level wasn't working, it was just canned and it got thrown out, so. And that's always a sign of a good game when you actually want to play it yourself, I guess. Yeah, no, and I, and I did enjoy playing it. And, um, you know, it, it, it it's sort of, it's still fun to, to a degree. I mean, I think, you know, it's quite hard to find TVs these, these days that you can plug a SCART cable into um, where it doesn't look quite grainy. But, um, but yeah, it, 
Well, you mentioned that Rick Mayall as well was involved. Uh, how did that happen then? So uh, we had a bit of discussion. Once Infograms were invested in the idea again, they said, well, look, we're really interested in getting some comedians involved. Um, they had some French comedians, uh, whose name I forget, um, unfortunately. Um, but they, they wanted them to do the voiceovers for the games. Um, and they said, well, you know, was there an English comedian that we could use for the UK version? Um, and, uh, you know, I, I actually wanted Stephen Fry, uh, so that was my, um, my first uh, bid. But the, uh, uh, the, the marketing people sort of, you know, put out messages and, and, and they came up with uh, Rick Mail. So, I mean, it was fantastic, you know. We were all in the same, you know, Blackadder world, so that was great. Yeah, That's we've good. got a clip, haven't we, of Rick Mail? Yeah, let's have a look at Rick doing the voiceovers then. It may well be an innocent and topical chat between comrades, but no, resist the temptation of disclosure. Loose lips sink ships. The enemy is everywhere. The entire war effort depends on keeping secrets under wraps, such as the Mark 13 multi-winged fighter. Oh. Great secret. Top scientists have just completed this state-of-the-art prototype that could determine the outcome of the air war. Look at it. Oh, the Germans will never find out. Thanks to you. Gonna underline the gag. <laughs> but the Germans will never find out so long as you keep this a secret. <laughs> Good work, lads. Good work. Don't tell the wife. Currently available. Uh, they're just talking about some of my delivery of the lines. This is how it works. Um, if you're a young person, uh, think you're becoming an actor? Uh, don't become an actor because uh, it's my work. I've got friends, some of them are tall, and many of them are ex-drug dealers. If you think of becoming an actor and you and I are up for the same audition, you are not going to get the part, but that's the top of your problems. You may not be able to walk again, you may be blinded, anything could happen. Not just to you, to your loved ones as well. Don't become an actor. It's my work. I don't think I've seen that last bit. <laughs> but having like Lord Flashheart involved in the game, that must have been incredible, was it? No, I mean, he was incredible for the game. And, um, you know, that is often what people sort of remember so fondly about the game is Rick Mail's quips. But, uh, I mean, a lot of voiceover was done by Mark Silk as well, so a professional voiceover artist. Um, but, um, but, no, it was, it was brilliant to have him in there. Um, I was very disappointed that I didn't actually get to meet him, though. Um, I, I had a seat in the car to go to the recording where he was doing it, but, unfortunately, I, I was trumped by a, a marketing executive. Um, perhaps it's because I voted for Stephen Fry, I don't know. Well, what about, you know, from the people you did work with who did work with Rick, how did they describe working with him on the go? Uh, I mean, they, they said it was brilliant. Um, you know, I was trying to close my ears. And, uh, but, uh, but no, I mean, Aid Carlos was, uh, the designer, was a, a, you know, a big character himself. Um, so I think they probably had a quite, you know, a complete riot when they got together. And he did a lot of voice work on there. So he did the announcer, he did nearly every individual pig's voice as well. Because each team had four picks and then each one had a different voice. Yeah, yeah, although not all of those are Rick, as I was saying. Yeah, that, I mean, I think probably he only did half, half of the picks. Okay. Um, and the other half, you might think they're Rick, but they're not. <laughs> was he a fan of the game? Was he much of a gamer, do you know? Um, I, I don't believe he had played it. Um, uh, I mean, you know, this was... Uh, gaming wasn't quite as mainstream back then. Um, I think, you know, I'd like to think... Um, if he was still with us today, he'd be well into gaming. and Big Fortnite fan, I think. Do you think the game would be able to come out at the moment with the kind of stereotyping and somewhat risky <laughs> names that some of the uh, characters have? Yes, there, there is a certain sort of level of xenophobia um, behind the game. 
Um, I mean, I think uh, it, it was even-handed, though. I think, you know, what it was trying to do is take the mickey out of... So if you play the French version of the game, it is taking the mickey out of English people with English stereotypes. If you, um, you know, if you play the German version of the game, it's taking the mickey out of the French and the Germans. It's Everybody got it, really. Yeah, so it, it, it's all, you know, infograms and, and even Gremlin were very much into selling their products across the whole of Europe. So they were all very much localized to, uh, to appeal to those audiences. I think you know, the very fact that it spent 10 weeks at the number one in the charts in Germany, you know, for a, a game about World War I to be number one in the German charts for, for 10 weeks was something else. And there was, a, there was a German rock band that wrote a song about it as well, um, which was very bizarre. And uh, you had a lot of FMV in there as well. So there was... FMV, the sound, and all of the gameplay. How did you manage to fit it all in the disc? Tony Crowther's amazing video player. Um, so Tony Crowther um, was, uh, I mean, he, he's the guy that sort of wrote um, some of the early uh, 8-bit games with Gremlin. Yeah. Um, and, it, and I mean, he's still a senior engineer at Sumo Digital today, you know, working on games like Crackdown, etc. Um, he had a video player which could do a very good job of squeezing you know, stuff onto a, a PlayStation disc. Um, but there wasn't actually room for absolutely everything in all the versions. But, uh, but no, so there was, a, there was a lovely animation sequence that the artist spent absolutely months working on that's sort of telling the story of the pig going off to war, um, which was, was canned from the, the final game, uh, partly due to space, but partly because it's got a slightly unsatisfactory ending. Um, but I think we've got that. If we can show that, that would be really cool. Yeah, let's have a look at that now, please. But you, know, you can see, actually, think how, how big was a PlayStation disc? It was like, well, 700 megabytes? <laughs> I imagine that was like, that would have took a pretty big chunk of the disc up. Yes, that would have taken a pretty big, uh, big chunk of the disc up. Um, and I think, you know, the marketing department felt it was a, it was a bit too grim, a bit, bit too dark. Well, you know, speaking of like that World War I theme, there's one thing about the game is the, the weapons were realistic. It didn't go down the worms route of like, you know, donkeys and grandma and that kind of thing. Was that a decision that you made early on? Or? Yeah, I mean, we were very conscious that we would be compared with worms. Um, but so we did, you know, try and keep some distance between what, what they were doing and what we were doing. I mean, we, uh, when the game was being developed, um, we were always worried that they might come out with Worms 3D before we came out with, worm, uh, with hogs. Um, but I think we read a, a newspaper article at the time that said, well, no, they've given up on Worms uh, 3D. It, it couldn't be done. They were sticking to, to 2D versions of the game. So at that point, we felt, well, OK, we've got a chance here to kind of make our own space a little bit um, with the 3D version. Well, Worms 3D came out three years after that. Um, what did you think of the game? Yeah, it was good. Um, and I think, uh, you know, our front-end programmer on Hogs... Um, uh, did a good job of, uh, of, you know, t of taking on board some of the experiences that we'd learned in Hogs and taking those to Worms 3D. Um, I mean, they had the destructible landscape, which I think you know, we would have loved to have done, um, but probably wouldn't have worked on uh, PlayStation 1 consoles. Um, but it's Paul, Paul Tapper was the, the programmer, and, and yeah, he went to work for Team 17 subsequently and, and worked on those games. I mean, was there a plan to do like a a sequel at that stage then, or any talks of it while I'm there? Yeah, I mean, there have been a number of planned sequels over the years. Um, so we were going to make Hogs of Wars 2 almost straight afterwards. Um, but uh, surprise, surprise, um, it, they found that the game didn't really sell well in America. Um, basically, they, they said, well, you know, it's a very quirky British uh, sense of humor. Uh, Americans didn't really get it. And at that point, 
um, you know, that, that was a really huge chunk of the, the console market. So uh, Infogrames didn't feel they could invest in a game that was only going to sell in Europe, um, even if it you know, sold really well in Europe. Well, it began on the PlayStation 1, but it, it's now on Steam and also on the PlayStation Network, which is kind of testament to how good a game it was. Um, do you think we'd see any remastered versions or any future ports of Hogs of War? Well, you never know. Um, so it, when I left uh, the industry um, uh, and Infogrames was closing down, I knew I was going to academia. Um, I knew I was going to be doing teaching. So I got their permission at that point to take the resources from the games I've worked on with me for my teaching. Uh, so I've been using Hogs of War in my teaching for the best part of a decade. Um, but bizarrely, it's not been until this year that a group of students have actually completely uh, taken the game apart. So they've managed to get the levels, the level format working, um, and they've actually got it running uh, on a PlayStation 4. So they've got the original PlayStation 1 code all running on the PlayStation 4. They're starting to write a renderer working for it. Um, and if they can get the kind of pig animation working, then you know, we would actually have a version that would work. Um, at the moment, it's just a student project, but you know, it's, it's looking very promising. Yeah, student projects go, that's a pretty cool one. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it really is. And, and they've done some incredible work to actually get there. I mean, it, you forget the PlayStation 1 architecture had no floating point. Um, uh, and you know, to take that to a sort of 64-bit modern architecture is actually quite a challenge. And, and many things break. Uh, particularly when you're taking code uh, that was written by uh, you know, young, young people themselves back 20 years ago. What do you think of the recent kind of like, retro interest in like, these classic titles? Did you ever think that you know, like, two decades on people would still be talking about the game and interested? Uh, no, I mean, uh, I mean it's, it, it's really nice, I suppose, that um, the games that we sort of remember fondly are still there to be played. I think you know, th there really is this sort of danger that some of these games might get lost. I think particularly nowadays where with you know, digital downloads and day one patches, um, it's kind of almost impossible to own a version that you can just kind of keep for posterity. Um, I, I mean, in Sheffield, the, the National Video Game Museum has sort of moved to Sheffield recently. And I think you know, one of the things they're looking at is trying to preserve games and make sure they, they're there for future generations to enjoy. Well, we have got a few minutes. If anyone's got um, any questions you'd like to ask, there's one down the front there, Ravi. Do you want to run down? Uh, first off, now, you more or less answered half of my questions already I was going to ask, but on the secret clip, the one where we actually get to see the pig uh, leave for the war, I've actually seen that on most versions, I mean, I've actually unlocked it on my version, I've still got a copy of Hogs of War, which I'd like you to sign, thank you, Jake, but there's actually a code where you can actually see a cut-down version of the, of, of the pig going to war. And when I saw it, I, I didn't really actually feel disturbed, I was just laughed my socks off but did you were you actually aware that they actually managed to cut that version into into the game like as a secret code or something yes oh. i did it and didn't tell them oh and one last question why can't we play as the legendary pigs for god's sake it was really unfair there were there were certain uh, are you talking about the the ones that were cut out so you, so you, the enemy plays legendary pigs don't they yeah but you don't get to do them yeah i mean there, there were sort of certain tiers of the hierarchy that we planned for but we didn't have enough weapons to justify um, so they kind of got cut out of the game because there wasn't enough difference between the lower ranks and the next rank up. Um, just one of those things, wasn't enough time, wasn't enough content. Yeah, but one of them is called Jake Ski, so that's... Hello. Um, my question is, if you were going to do a sequel to Hogs of War, how would you have um, expanded on the game mechanics? 
So uh, the sequel that was planned by uh, Infograms uh, was called Hogs of War 2, The Buns of Navarone. Um, and I, I have the design document. Um, I mean, it was going to be much more character-based. So the idea was it was kind of a bit like Dirty Dozen. So they, these were kind of pigs that were taken out of prison to perform um, this kind of death-defying mission. Um, and I think, you know, the designers were really wrestling with this... this in the original game, you had this, this uh, sort of le leveling up mentality of, of the pigs. You could, you could promote them through the ranks. You could name them as a grunt and see them go up through the ranks and give them different abilities by taking them in different directions. What the designers wanted with the sequel was more that you know, you'd have a real personality in each character. Um, thus, the upgrades wouldn't have changed them quite as much. Um, but it allowed them to sort of put kind of characters that would have worked on PlayStation 2 um, you know, put that much more detail into them. And I, I think it would have been really interesting to have seen. First of all, thank you. I'm sorry I'm late to the party, Jake. Just going on from the guy, uh, the question, the gent at the front, you said about a PlayStation 4 port. Now, obviously, you said about rewriting code and things. The levels that you said that you had not enough weapons, do you think that they'll actually come on to, hopefully, a remastered version? Do you think that would be a possibility? I don't know. I mean, um, you know, the moment is just a student project. The students have taken the attitude that they're just trying to get the original code working um, on a PlayStation 4. Um, so, you know, they, they've tried to stay away from the original code and messing with it as much as they can. Um, adding additional weapons and things, you know, would, would certainly add to the scope of that. I mean, who knows? Um, we've had some really cool student projects over the years. We've shipped PlayStation 4 games. Um, from our Steel Minions game studio at Sheffield Hallam University. So, you know, it's not impossible, but um, it, at the moment it's still just a student project. So I are, are you teaching at Sheffield Hallam? Yes, I teach at Sheffield Hallam. Um, and I run the, the Steel Minions game studio there. So, um, and, uh, you know, we're PlayStation developers. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't stay away from PlayStation even when I went to university. Okay, well, it's been wonderful talking to you, Jake. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing the memories of Hogs of War. Uh, please give a big thank you to Jacob Habgood. Thank you. That was Jake Habgood recorded live on the Retro Hour stage at Play Expo in Manchester on Saturday morning. And now we're going to go into a great little celebration of Jet Set Willy's 35th anniversary, hosted by Paul Drury of Retro Gamer magazine with the legendary Matthew Smith. Hello. Uh, welcome, uh, everyone, to Play Expo. But also welcome to this event, which is to mark the 35th anniversary of the release of Jet Set Willy. Uh, my name is Paul Drury. Uh, I'm assisted as I always am by Martin Cowell, who does all the fancy things on screen. And we both write for Retro Gamer magazine. Now our magazine has featured Jet Set Willy and its predecessor Manic Miner many, many times in its pages. And that's not surprising because both those games are some of the best-loved and most iconic titles from that whole 8-bit period. We're absolutely delighted to welcome the creator of those games, who is just as intriguing and unique as the games themselves. The other thing about Jet Set Willy is that it inspired people. Not long after the game was released, um, various tools came out so people could make their own versions of Jet Set Willy. Probably one of the first examples of a mod. Someone here has been inspired to do more than just make a mod of the game. 
Italian director Paolo Sant'Agostino, okay, has actually made a film um, all about Jet Set Willy. So without further ado, please could you give a warm welcome to Matthew and Paolo. Uh, right, so uh, just to kick us off, Paolo, I'm, Paolo, I'm going to start with Hello. you. Um, uh, Paolo, can you re recall the first time you actually saw Jet Set Willy? I was 11 years old in my home in Italy, and my brother, that is um, older than me, three years, he brought the, the, the game home. So we, we were already Manic Miner fun, so it was great to see the sequel. And, uh, yeah, it was really exciting. What, what was yeah. like your first impression of the game? You said you were a Manic Miner fan. What was your first impression as you saw this was a very different kind of game? Yeah, I mean, what, what, what I think is special is, for me is, is the freedom. Just the first time I was playing, I was like, okay, look, I want to see the house. I, want, I don't want really to collect all the items. So it was something like exploring more than have the mission of the game. So this, this was the first feeling of freedom I, ha I had with the video games in my life. And then this kind of freedom I, I later enjoyed with other games, uh, sandbox games, but this was the first one, so... Um, yeah. You mentioned that you wanted to explore the house. Yes. So does that mean that you made a map of the game? Was that kind of part of what you enjoyed? Yes, that's what the great thing, because we, we just start to, to draw maps. And it was incredible, because, you know, I, I don't think this analogic drawing maps is still something that children can do now. Maybe, I hope so, but at the, back the time was really great. I mean, it was something artistic that you, you make your drawings and you try to making a map. Of course, there was no internet or nothing, so you have to do it, and that was great. I wonder, sticking with that theme of maps, is that the kind of inspiration for you to eventually go on and make this film to kind of show the scale of the game, which you don't always have that sense when yeah, you're just yeah, playing a single Yeah, that was the starting point, because when I bought the mobile version of Jesse Will, and then I said, okay, I want to, I want to start make again a map because I didn't finish at the time and then I say okay maybe I can try you know to build a, a living map with a computer and that was the starting point from the movie so yeah. are you telling me that you never actually finished Jet Set Willy back in the day yeah and never finished the map as well yeah you, were, you weren't <laughs> alone you weren't alone on that one right. and uh, perhaps on that note I'll come to the man that uh, created the, the game um, uh, Matthew so, you had finished Manic Miner in an eight-week flurry of activity. Jet Set Willy took a lot longer. Well, well long the, the, the implementation was the, was the culmination. It, it, it was eight, eight weeks total implementation. But, yeah, yeah, yeah a, lot, a lot of the uh, actual design went on in that time as well because the, a lot of that wasn't used directly. So... So when you actually came to start on Jet Set Willy, yeah. what was the original plan? The original idea for Jet Set Willy would have turned out more like Attic Attack instead of being an obvious follow-up to Manic Miner. Wow, so hang on, you've not told me that before. So you're telling me that Miner Willy was originally not necessarily going to be in this mansion. It was going to be in a more kind of 
free environment to explore. Yeah, 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 in the sort of way where they, they, they were in the original plan still had the path, the path he was still going on. Oh, really? That sounds yeah, cool. Yeah. Tell us about some of the uh, process. I mean, were you literally drawing rooms out on graph paper or were you just doing it all straight on screen? No, 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 no. It's all either partly drawn on paper and then directly done in binary. But yeah, squared paper was the, was the, the best. But I actually, yeah, I did a lot of the, the levels that I remember drawing on graph paper, drawing out on graph paper. Are all the boring, all the boring empty screens in the, the middle of the left of the house? Perhaps you could give us an idea of how development went. I mean, was it a smooth uh, process? Uh, I've been I've, uh, recommended by my therapist that I don't talk about that period of my. <laughs> yeah, it... I mean, I, I know we're here to celebrate the 35 years of uh, Jet Set Willie, but if. Um, my, my memories of the of the development time were, were not actually something that I have very fond memories of. I wondered, with this much distance, 35 years, is it possible for you to divorce your memories of that stressful time and actually appreciate the thing that you created? No, it's, it's an old Spectrum game. I mean, I, I, I mean, yeah, if I'm being honest, I'm, 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 not, I'm, I'm not here to paint a rosy picture of uh, development hell. Had I ever got paid for the effort, then like, I could, I, I could uh, satisfy myself with that. But it, it wasn't pleasant and I didn't get paid and celebrate that. <laughs> yeah, sorry to send you back to that dark time. Um, <laughs> but on a brighter note... Uh, anyway, uh, Paolo, I, I'm okay. going to come back for you. Uh, it, at what point did you realise that you could use the game engine to actually make the film? Because I was playing with my editing software, Premiere. And I just record some rooms, and then I, you know, I put Willie, and and I cover him with a black, and then there was this empty room with the monster. So I say, okay, let's do all the sixty room like this, and then I was starting. We um, we did hear some voices, a lot, some of them back in the day. Yeah, some Chris Cannon is here, yeah. one of the lead voice. Chris Cannon, oh. there, who worked at Bugbyte and then Software Projects. Well, and Chris, there you go. Paolo, is there anyone that you would have liked to include uh, their voices in the film? Anyone that you just didn't quite manage to get hold of? Actually, I want to... My dream was to have also, as you know, Clive Sinclair here with us. <laughs> That's I, good I, I, my I, I, Oh, right. He was you, in the you, film, though, wasn't he? Talking about... Yeah, but I took too. from a BBC interview. Yeah. Yeah, that's what. One more question, Paolo. You should, should have had the quote for like um, from the Micro Men film, where Alexander Armstrong says, yeah. <laughs> yeah, "My yeah. life's work and all the remembrance, <laughs> Willie." Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's a lovely memory. Actually, uh, Paolo, could I ask one more question? Yeah. Well done for getting the ringtone. Well done for getting the film done. Have you got any plans for it now? Are you taking it on tour or maybe a physical release? I don't know. I don't know yet. I hope, I hope to, you know, I, I don't want to talk also with the Jess at Willie fans. I, I would like to, you know, to talk with people that doesn't know nothing about these two games, Manic Mine and Jess at Willie. So that's my goal. I hope to, you know, I'm, I have to find a uh, something, some help, of course. 
I, I hope to find some people that can help me to bring this work. Well, if there's anyone in the audience, yeah, come and find Paolo come. afterwards. He'd be delighted to talk. <laughs> yeah. Matthew, I'm going to come so, so to... So uh, you're not tempted to put it on YouTube or anything? Yeah, I, I mean, not now because I want to try some festivals. And then after, uh, yeah, of course, I want to put on internet... Matthew I'll, uh, Matthew, I'll come to you. Watching your game on the big screen like that, I just wondered whether you could appreciate it in a, in a new light. No, 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 because I was looking, I was, I was, I was staring, when I was, when I was writing it and test, testing it, I was, I was staring at it so close. It might, it might as well have been on a big screen like this, because <laughs> I was staring at it that, that hard. Seeing all the screens working together is actually... How it was, yeah, what was in my mind's eye as I was doing it. So it's, it, it, it very much brings me back. Um, you know, as one of the uh, voices on the documentary said yeah. that, that um, a friend, friends didn't recognise your talent and neither did you. Is that um, true? I, I, think, uh, I, I, I think I was just, just, just good, at, good, at, good at faking modesty. No, no, because, because they, we, we, we were very competitive. We'd show each other with the game we wrote the night before and then uh, say, oh, well, tomorrow I'll, I'll bring something better and we'll bring a... So was it important that you were a part of a scene? Was it that, <laughs> that community that actually helped Excuse you me. produce the game? Well, it's, 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 it was always vital to be a, a member of an active software piracy community or, or, else, or else you couldn't afford the tools. <laughs> Um, or, or even know where, where, which tools are available and where. There's, uh, yeah, yeah, it's uh, the days before the internet. It was, yeah, it's vital to actually physically meet because we couldn't even, uh, yeah, couldn't email or. Yeah, 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 Chris and I, we did manage to um, send Spectrum, yeah, Spectrum program across a telephone line. Um, what, be, before, before you not we, using a modem. Yeah, no, no, no modem. Just, just, just cassette out into the tape, and in into the phone, and then save on one and load on the other. And we, we got across the Mersey with that. Well, there you go. When does never cease? Um, okay, I'm just going to ask you a few more questions, then I'll open it up here. I just wondered, Matthew, are you surprised that we are still talking about Jet Set Willy? 35 years later. Did you expect that at all when you'd finished writing it? I, I think if I'd, if I'd managed, if I'd written a third game, if I'd written 20 games, then the, the, the two that did, I did finish would be less significant, I think. But maybe there'd be, it would be a footnote in a, it'd be the, it would only be the first five minutes of this show, put it that way. Matthew, thank you very much. And now, so now it's time to open it up to you, the audience. I believe that my good friend Ravi there from the, uh, the Retro has got a roving mic, is that right? So um, in the traditional method, if you could stick your hand up, if you would like to like, hey, there you go. If you'd like to ask Matthew or Paolo or both a question, and I will pass you this. Well, first of all, I'd just like to say thank you very much. As a 15-year-old boy sat in his bedroom in a six-week holiday, and to be able to see what I was actually playing without actually struggling playing it was really nice to see all the rooms together not thinking the next 
two seconds I'm going to lose another life and have to start all over again. It's just so nice that I've got such good memories and sadly you've got such bad memories of those times. It was work. You can have a rough day at work and it's, it's, um, you get by by thinking about the money. And, uh, yeah, so, but, but if you do the work and you don't get the money, then, like, you know, the, the, the only memory you want to take away from that is how not to do it, is not to do it again. And so I never did. <laughs> right, Matthew, you, really interesting. Earlier you said that Jet Set Willy was some old Spectrum game, right? Uh, who's, talk, but, who's talking now? I can't, can't. All right. I, but it, it's an old spectrum game in, the, in just the same way that the Mona Lisa is an old painting of a woman, right? Yeah. So remember that. Um, so I just wondered, do, do you still play games? And if you do, what do you play? When I'm, when I'm avoiding work for 10 minutes, I'll play Spider Solitaire. With, with, with four, four suits, so to make it a proper challenge. And uh, when I want to kill an hour, I, I go back and uh, play the same map I play all the time on Age of Mythology. Well, refining the same exact strategy I played a thousand times before. I'm, uh, yeah, am I a gamer? Yes, yes. I, I like to, to play some indie games I like. Still a bit of Grand Theft Auto series. A ah. bit of, because I, you know. But uh, mo- most I... Um, I had like this year when I was working on this, I was playing all my old, really old play games, also arcade games, and you know, just to while I was working on this, I was okay. I, I'm trying to remember that time, you know. So I played all the games of the '80s. Yeah, that was I, really I, old and age. I, I never go back and play Spectrum games. Really, yeah. there were a, f- a few Spectrum games were worth getting into, like School Days. And, uh, if we're fair, most Spectrum games could be were better on 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 the Commodore and the Atari and whatever. <laughs> you're, you're losing the audience, Matthew. Let's have another question quickly. Come and have a go. You love it, Elite, right? The Elite it. game. You no, love the, it. BBC Micro, yeah. Yeah. Best version. My question's directly to uh, to Matt. Um, I'm the, uh, the author of the Atari conversion of Manic Miner. Um, oh. I thought it would be uh, good for the game actually to uh, come full circle back to the Atari, the platform that inspired it in the first place. Are you Shahid? <laughs> no. <laughs> I have met Shahid actually, but no, I'm not. You famously wrote the game on the TRS-80 after instability. I just wondered, being a programmer, where you actually got the hardware knowledge to... Uh, create the interface that you used? Well, well, I actually got into computers via electronics. I was, um, yeah, I was, I was, I was, I was, I was uh, had a soldering arm before I had a computer. It, it was out of necessity. I mean, it was, it, it was, it's very hard to, to, to keep the computer running without some amount of uh, electronics work back then. There was going to be a third one, wasn't there? Uh, well, yeah, every, yeah, and, and a fourth and a fifth. Oh, the, the original plan was to, to write th- two or three a year. And every, what happened? Um, I, I, I didn't have enough money to write. Since, since, since I made some uh, bad business agreements and I couldn't afford to carry on after Jet Set Willie. 
I just wondered, the copy protection uh, code sheet, that's sort of almost taken a, a life of its own, as, yeah, as you can see. Um, how did that come about? Because that was sort of a, a kind of revolutionary thing at the time. Uh, yeah, we, yeah, we copied it from some, yeah, some American companies doing it first. And you, you know it's never going to stop anyone determined. It's just like... But it's, it, it, it's fun knowing that there's kids who sit in a rice and copy it all out in Longhand. Hello. Uh, pleasure Hi. to meet you, uh, Matthew. Cheers. Uh, thanks for inspiring uh, lots of uh, games programmers over the years. Uh, may I just quickly ask whether you intend on... Um, extending Jet Set Willy type game to the ZX Spectrum next? And if not, uh, can you be convinced? I, 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 well, I, 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 I have a game that uh, I've dug up that I'm developing that was, I was thinking of actually as a challenge, actually porting it to, to, the original, to an actual Spectrum. And, it's, and, and I'm keeping in mind to keep it compatible with the limitations. But at the moment, I'm, I'm going to have to do some sort of fundraising before I even get much further than that. Because they, 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 there's all the things, the, the costs of development. They say, oh, well, you've got a computer. That's all you need. And there's never that's all you need. There's, there's always like, you know, your mouse breaks and you've got to replace it. And, you know, if you, if you haven't got an income, if you're just running down on, on savings and capital, then uh, it's, it's even like you're faced with a choice. You, you either know you've got enough to finish development, that would be ideal, or you have to, you have to decide you'll get, you'll get by somehow, even though you can't, see, you can't actually see a clear path. And, and this is the uh, final question. Hello, Matt, and thank you for gracing us with your presence today. I was on the team that did the Sam Coupe version of Manic Miner, so obviously I've been, always been a big fan of your work. Now, there were a few leaked um, images. Did, 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 did you, I didn't give the source code to anyone. Did um, I? Did, or did you have to start from scratch? We started did, from scratch. Didn't you, didn't you disassemble it at least? Well, I took apart your original work yeah. using the Spectrum Plus D interface at the time but it was my talented friend that uh, did all the donkey work. I just had to create another, help create another 40 levels for the game. As quick question, one of the other people touched on, which of the planned sequels to Jet Set would you prefer to have seen released next? If all of them. Uh, <laughs> by Christmas. By so, <laughs> <laughs> um, we're seeing some leaked pictures of Megatree and so on. I yeah. mean, that looked fascinating. Is that one you, if you ever had the opportunity to go, that would be probably your first choice or one of the other ideas? Uh, well, they, no, no, there's, uh, they, 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 we were sort of embryonic planning stage when uh, that, that, that project got cancelled. Yeah. We were, we were just thrown together. Okay. They said, those three like drinking, so let's stick them all somewhere where they can, they can like, bounce ideas off each other. And stop disrupting the office. And but but then after a while they decided that they, they pulled. I wasn't in charge of the process, the software project. So so I think Jet said, well, he only got finished because I had most of the work done before we started software projects. If I'm honest. 
Okay, um, thanks uh, everyone. And I'm also stunned with how many people in the room have had some kind of involvement with Jet Set Wheel.